Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tony Dwyer dropping by the studio, Canaccord Genmity, Chief Market Strategist, and he joins us now. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning, Jeff. So what's the highlight of the week for you, looking ahead? Well, the market's had such a run. It's had a 13% gain off the uh, Christmas Eve low. And typically, when you get this kind of overbought and you've had that kind of reflex rally, you have a little bit of a pause. So no matter what, I can't see a lack of volatility in the news coming out, whether it's corporate profits. It's it's one of the biggest weeks of corporate profit season. Yeah. Um, so we're going to hear a lot of forward guidance, which is probably like uh, be a little bit soft. Uh, we're going to hear from the Fed, who's going to sound dovish, which offsets the softness in corporate profits. So there's a lot of cross currents that are happening that probably mean we just kind of digest the gains. What do we need from the trade talks in Washington? Do we need some better optics? Do we need some substance? What is it? Oh, good Lord. I, I mean, we've had different optics and different uh, commentaries both ways for the last couple of months. And ultimately, what it really comes down to, John, is you just need some sort of resolution, but it comes down to Fed policy. I'm much more focused on Fed policy than the trade tensions. Um, clearly, both economies are now softer. Uh, China's been soft for a while. The emerging economies have been soft for a while. And the U.S. has outperformed, but that's softening too. So, you, you know, truly, I think we just make stuff up <laughs> to look at the direction of the market. It comes down to, is the Fed going to provide more liquidity or less liquidity? So is the Fed going to pause? Because all the communication over the last month suggests they are, Tony. Well, we've, John, we've done this analog to 1994-1995. The last time that you got to the yield curve as flat as it is without inverting. And you got into a very, very soft economic backdrop for the first half of 1995. And the Fed went from tightening interest rates in February 1st of 1995. They eased in July because the data got so soft so quickly. I think there could be a replay of that where the data gets soft enough that the next Fed move may not just be a pause, not obviously not today, but uh, this summertime, they may actually ease if the data gets soft enough. Tony, you're the, um, oh yeah. Welcome back. The button's over the, the, there. The button for the <laughs> microphone's there. I had to figure out the button here. You know, it's... You like to push the buttons, Tony. Hey, Tony, we had Fran- a long weekend. Francine and I, Francine and I could barely talk weekend. on TV. What was the word we were butchering? Cataclysmic. cataclysmic. We, got, we can do cataclysmic, cataclysmic on radio. It didn't work on television this morning. Tony, the dirty little secret is you write a hyper-detailed research note for Canaccord Genuity. You come out on media and you're all general statements. I get that for, for dumb people like me. You write a hyper-detailed note. What in your note has the most interest to you right now? That we've had a median 13%. We've had three crashes. And since 1950, non-recession crashes. And a crash is defined as a 20% drop in less than four months by my buddy Jason Goford at Cinnamon Trader. Of those three crashes, your median rally back, your reflex rally, Right. was 13.4%. Because oh, that's all so we're there right now. Over the exact amount of time okay. that we've done it this time. So so that's the, the charts I think that are the most important is you've had what is typically happens after that kind of market event. I, I, I 100% agree with that. But then how do you discern a reflex rally within the gloom of a bear market from the opportunity of making alpha out one year, five years, 10 years. I mean, most of our people are day trading three weeks in and out. And Tom, on the TV show, we talked about what, what 
you know, I guess the media, people like me, investors got wrong over the last 10 years. And that's not using extraordinary weakness to take advantage of as long as credit is okay. Credit is okay and actually good I mean, unless you invert the, the yield curve. So, so the point right. is that we would like – sometimes the market's not telling you anything. People like me come on all the time. Oh, the market's yeah. down and it's telling yeah, you yeah, that yeah. way. No, it's not. It's telling you there are more sellers I mean, than buyers at a time where there was no support structure for the market. The Fed took away, uh, the regulators took away the ability for banks to buy stocks into weakness via the Volcker rule. Mm -hmm. the, uh, there's no uptick rule on shorting. So the momentum algorithmic funds can just keep pressing the downside as the momentum picks up. There's no specialist in, in market makers because of decimalization. So the bottom line is who is your buyer into what I call is a whoosh? And that creates these buying opportunities that are extraordinary over the last... I've been so wrong three times this cycle, Yeah, near term. I've, I didn't think in 2011 you were going to crack. I didn't think in 2016 you were going to crack like that. But I want to... And similar to this one, you don't want to get negative on those cracks unless credit shuts down well, and it's Tony, not. Let's, let's talk about that. You've mentioned credit a couple of times now. Do you mean the credit market or do you mean the provision of credit? Both. Both, Jonathan. So, I mean, where, so where do you take confidence from right now? Because in December, also, credit was really soft just in terms of the credit market. And it's been extraordinary. Our asset class strategist, who's also on Bloomberg, is um, Brian Reynolds. He pointing out to you are accelerating the new issuance of corporate credit. It's been you're, you're not only you're making up for this slowdown in December. So I, I would point out that when John Farrow discovered this in Davos, he was way out on this last week. He usually the, is. The speed of issuance. <laughs> I can never tell whether curve. you guys are being nice to me. <laughs> no, or we're being nice right now. Well, Tom's being nice because he's tired. Well, the junk bond market's come back. The primary issuance has picked up a little bit. And from what I've seen so far this month, pretty much everything that has come to market has performed really well in the secondary market as well. But the issuance is still pretty small, Tony. We're coming off a base where we had no issuance whatsoever in December. So I see it as an encouraging sign. I'm just wondering whether it's enough to say the coast is clear. It, it's... If, if you and I and Tom can get a loan, if the listeners driving their car can go to the bank or call up the Rocket Mortgage and get a loan, then credit's not shut down. If companies can come to market and have... So Brian pointed out the Charter Communication. Charter Communication issued debt a couple of weeks ago, and there was excessive demand. It was oversubscribed. You're not seeing undersubscribed sale of debt. You're buying. You're seeing oversubscribed yeah. buying yeah. of corporate credit and new not issuance. just in credit, Tom. This one worries me though, and it's not corporate credit in America. It's the eurozone right now. Record demand last week for Spain. Record Here demand the week before for Italy. We had an Irish sale this this month as well, which was four times oversubscribed. And then this morning, the headline dropped across the Bloomberg. Greece is coming back to market. <laughs> All these things are happening, Tom, at a time when the picture in the eurozone isn't getting better. It's getting worse. Okay, but how does that money flow into the equity market to get to your record high forecast? It's, if you take all of the different avenues that can buy stocks in the U.S., yeah. mutual funds, ETFs, passive funds, blah, blah, blah. Buybacks is by far funds. the highest thing. It's the only thing. Is it financial, enge but is it financial engineering? Well, if you didn't That's have what the any critics top would line, say. no, because if you didn't have any top line, the one thing that uh, the bears got wrong in 2016 is they thought that was a peak in the profit margins of corporate America. And the only thing that is peak profit margins in corporate America is when you have a total top line sustainable <laughs> failure. The top line has been growing. It's not been shrinking. Now it's gonna slow. There's n what investors are gonna have to get used to is do you buy stocks that are up 
when the data is getting worse because the data is going to get worse. We haven't had any. Now we're going to get a slew of it with the government reopening. Going to get a ton of data. But it's going to be, remember, you're going to be getting data from the fourth quarter, which wasn't exactly hot uh, yeah. in terms of, of the market. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genmity, Chief Market Strategist. Stuart Patrick with us with the Council on Foreign Relations. The Sovereignty Wars was an important book a year ago, still important, on reconciling America with its future. Stuart Patrick, uh, if we look at the Sovereignty Wars right now and we look at the many battles America's having on foreign policy, I go to your Chapter 6 of your book, which is Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Is that the U.S. approach? Yes, I think in, in many cases it is um, certainly the case for um, in integration of the global economy. I think there's been a widespread sense that uh, some of the arrangements that the United States has uh, championed and um, defended for many years just simply aren't working for the United States. That goes for a lot of other institutions as well, like the United Nations or NATO, etc. But it's really coming home in trade where you see, obviously, the the uh, abrogation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, huge uh, preference for bilateralism and dealing with China and then great great attacks on the World yeah. Trade Organization, even even the threat of, con, of conceivably walking away from the WTO. Within news to news to news moment, and there's all the upset. And we, I know we got the shutdown, Venezuela, et cetera. What support does the president of the United States have for his approach? I, I haven't really seen that measured, the number of Americans who believe in his more assertive approach. How large is that audience? You know, I think it's uh, roughly equivalent to his base, which is about a third of Americans. You can't expand the base from there. No, you can't. Uh, and, and, you know, there has been a number of polls. There have been polls from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, uh, from a number of other organizations that suggest that, you know, Americans tend to be uh, relatively um, pragmatically internationalist. They want uh, the, they want the world to do its fair share as well. So they don't want to be the policemen of the world, but they certainly uh, look at things internationally and multilaterally. They want, they want to do things cooperatively, and they understand that global problems require cooperative solutions. But there is a a significant minority uh, of uh, American electorate that really takes what uh, the historian Walter Russell Mead called the Jacksonian approach to foreign policy, and that is largely insular, largely or highly nationalist, and it has that sort of a it, – it'll, it's willing to lash out with a don't tread on me for ferocity if uh, the United States gets stung. But by and large, it likes to keep to itself. It likes to have freedom of action, and it likes to protect its constitution. And that's a very, very powerful constituency, and that's who the president is speaking to. Stuart, you've written recently in the World Politics Review, the liberal world order is dying. What comes next? What does come next? Well, I think that um, – uh, it's it, it's dying in, in a number of ways because um, the the president is, as I said, has sort of been reneging on a number of different international institutions that have been the in a sense the matrix that has held up uh, international order and also has retreated on 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 support for a democracy and human rights around the world or been very selective about it. What comes next, I think, is is a much less normatively deep world. I, I guess what I would say is more along the lines of sort of a concert of Europe of the 19th century, where you know there's there's some some effort to have great powers have either spheres of influence or 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 yeah. agreements on sort of small small uh, excuse me on, on basic issues of international order but there's not a whole lot of effort to try to be the custodian of world order like the United States did uh, for decades a century 
Stuart, we're used to having a hegemonic power. Um, will there be one and who will it be? I don't think there will be. I think it's, uh, you know, I don't think China, I think China will ha- aspire to hegemony in East Asia, um, but it doesn't have a universalist vision. Uh, most uh, would-be hegemons have have some sort of a universalistic vision, whether it's, you know, the Soviet Union with, uh, with uh, Marxist-Leninism. But uh, China doesn't have that, and it's not, it's, it's indicative in the fact that it doesn't really have – it has some partners around the world, but it doesn't have allies around the world. Uh, it doesn't have uh, – you know, it's out it, – it has a sort of a, tra- a traditional great power uh, view of itself. I think the same thing is true of Russia. And I think actually um, Donald Trump would like to make the United States similar to that way. So it would be, it's sort of getting away from the tradition yeah. of American exceptionalism. You get back towards uh, just a multipolar balance of power. I don't see a hegemon mm-hmm. on the horizon. Stuart Patrick with us, the Council on Foreign Relations. We are advantaged by Shannon O'Neill. Your Latin American expert on Friday as we considered Venezuela. It's been considered for years here as a fractured government, but now ever more. So, Stuart Patrick, give us your thoughts after weekend thinking and reading on Venezuela. What is the appropriate approach? I think the appropriate approach is is one that is as much as possible multilateral. Uh, obviously, there are some limitations with that. The, the Secretary Pompeo went to the UN Security Council, and there, of course, was stymied by the Russians within the Security Council. So they would certainly veto any sort of enforcement action. He has also uh, been uh, trying to rally the Organization of American States, which has been good. And there's sort of a coalition approach developing where it's not just the United States throwing its weight around in the hemisphere, but you've got, uh, obviously, the UK, you've got Canada, but you've also got important Latin American countries like Argentina and Brazil and Colombia that are really on record as uh, recognizing um, the opposition leader there. And then, of course, you've got the Europeans. The EU initially was resistant, but now it looks like uh, the uh, the Germans, the French, and the Spaniards are all going to recognize Juan Guaido as as the uh, de facto uh, president, a legitimate president of uh, of Venezuela. So I think that's yeah. the way to go forward. The difficulty is there aren't a whole lot of <clears throat> instruments. One of them might be uh, certainly financially. One could declare uh, Venezuela a, um, a state supporter of terrorism. Even probably a more easy easily would be able to. Uh, to declare it a uh, an international criminal enterprise, uh, and then of course uh, there would be efforts to try to get um, the opposition leader right. to have control over the revenue streams from Citgo and the uh, Petroleras de Venezuela. Stuart Patrick, thank you so much with the Council on Foreign Relations. Really can't say enough, folks, about the sharpness of his read, the sovereignty wars, uh, quite important on uh, the path forward for U.S. Whatever uh, your opinion. Diane Swank, Grant Thornton. Right now, Diane, let's take advantage of your affiliation with the statistics animals at the National Association for Business Economics. Do do you have a confidence that all this back data is going to come out and it's going to be on plan? Or are you preparing for a readjustment of your view of all this data that didn't appear? Well, that's a good question. I think we're going to see a lot of data that confirm that the fourth quarter was still on solid footing. It will come out in data dumps. And um, as they said, they're, they're just getting back to work now and figuring out what they can catch up yeah. on quickly. And they got to get the components of GDP. We didn't even get retail sales. We didn't get new home sales twice. We didn't get construction spending. We didn't get durable goods orders. All of those things have okay. to be put together before we can even know what GDP was. But we need to know what GDP was in the fourth quarter. Okay, thank you. But does that mean that if we look at say just to pick on one beast the atlanta fed gdp now number 
Is it a valid statistic or are they guessing too? Well, they're guessing too. I mean, we haven't had a lot of data to influence those numbers. So, you know, all of us are sitting out there trying to adjust our GDP statistics statistics excuse no, me. no it's monday without, it's, without it's a called... lot of without a lot of data so we're doing it yeah. off of more of the qualitative data than actually the right. quantitative data and that's what's really hard because the qualitative data is you know it usually fills in the colors inside the lines of the hard data and right now we don't have the hard lines to color in uh, diane a lot of people are focused on inventories um morgan stanley pointing out this morning that they think there will be a payback of a pull forward ahead of the tariffs during the third quarter 2018. Do you see that happening too, Diane? That's one of the things we're going to be really watching closely for because we do know um, there was this pull ahead in stockpiling, and that's what we're going to be watching very closely for. And Again, we didn't get that data either. And so we're sort of operating in a void right now, which the Fed's not going to get out of before their meeting, and they're going to have to acknowledge that the shutdown has blurred their view in terms of what's going on. And I think for this Fed meeting, and we do have our first presser after it, we're actually going to see Jay Powell. He's a quick learner um, say less rather than more because frankly there's not a lot to say you, you hope he's a quick learner after a couple of months we've <laughs> he had, had with he him did Diane. clarify you know he brought out that <laughs> with Ben and and, um, and and Janet he brought out that piece of paper and read it and how many times did he say patience in his recent speech and no pre-course you know set on interest rates so he and you know that I think flexibility all those things show how much of a quick learner he is and I actually think the Fed was already there if you look at the minutes they were already there in November. Diana word on Q1 if you can even if we had all the economic data available to us why do we find it so difficult to read America in Q1? Well, you know, clearly the shutdown is one issue, the collateral damage of it. And we're in, you know, we're in record cold territory going into Chicago right now. You can't move. The unusually bad weather is yeah. another factor that's going to complicate it. So I'm thinking 1.5%, but this is really hard. I know. It's made the Blackhawks even worse than they already are. Diane, <laughs> to John's really important point, there's an oddity about Q1. How do increased taxes affect GDP in Q1? That big C is 70% of the economy, and a lot of people have to revisit FICA and all that in the first quarter. Is that why we see a dampen Q1 as a general rule? We do, you know, Q1 has a seasonality problem. It does seem to show yeah. up in consumption. But worse yet is this year, many people thinking they're going to get a big tax refund didn't withhold enough. In fact, many of the big tax companies that deal with individual right. clients are actually training their personnel to be compassionate so that people don't get too angry when they don't get the refunds that they think they're going to get. Right. And that's really where the real sticking point is, I think, on this right. Q1. Not only do you have those issues, but you right. have a larger issue of people well, not getting the refunds they Diane, we've got a race here to our John Tucker who goes to Compassionate CPAs of New Jersey. How compassionate is your CPA this year, John Tucker? I almost kicked the dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can't I, say that <laughs> on radio. I said I almost. I wouldn't kick biscuits. What's the matter with you, man? You thought, you thought, you thought, you thought about violence towards animals. No. just That for, was a thought. Uh, it was a we will come moment. back. Diane's <laughs> I am not the beneficiary of the tax cuts. We have a moment of silence Value here. Value add from John Tucker. A, a moment of silence for biscuits. <laughs> Paul Sweeney, Tom Key in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. And we now we speak with Dean Kern of Macro Risk Advisors. 
uh, on volatility. And I do want to say, folks, that arguably it is the most intense research report that we see. It is beyond mathy. It is beyond Greek letters. Dean, translate the arcane gamma, vega, and theta of your newsletter into the King's English. What do we learn from volatility right now? Well, when we get into those, uh, those derivatives uh, like gamma, we're, we're really talking about uh, rates of change and the speed with which uh, things are moving. And um, I think you can translate that back into uh, the you know, more fundamental <clears throat> uh, portfolio strategist world by just looking at the, the daily swings uh, in the S&P 500. Um, so just a, a quick bit of context. Um, over a one-month period, we, we peaked out in terms of the severity of the um, S&P level of realized volatility. We peaked out at 31%. Um, that's almost 2% per day. That's how you have to uh, – that, that's the amount of motion you need mm-hmm. to get to a 30, 31%. We're back down to 18%. Uh, and that's that's likely headed lower still because you know all we're doing is looking in the rearview mirror and we're still picking up on a couple of days towards the end of 2018 that were extremely right. volatile. Um, and so you know you're left trying to evaluate is, is the cost of an option a good deal or not. And when we do that, we're really looking at the magnitude of these swings um, and then whether they're sustainable going forward. So. Um, right now, a two-month implied volatility, which is a metric for cost, is uh, right around 15%. Um, and I think that's pretty fair. I, I don't think that's either way too high or way too low. I think it's, uh, it, it's a reasonable number to reflect an increased level of uncertainty, um, but with the reality that to, to keep swings uh, of the magnitude that we had, is just it, it's very difficult historically to see that sustain itself. So, Dean, how much of the volatility that you are seeing in the marketplace is coming from macro trends or macro areas, whether it's China or Brexit? And how do you recommend your clients kind of position their portfolios for that, those, those macro uh, risks? Yeah, there's plenty of macro, uh, but there's also some micro, too. One might argue that the – and we always try to disentangle what, what's happening, right? The market participants are – uh, almost hopelessly in need of a, a narrative to explain the why of things. Um, and so we've seen a pretty healthy mix of macro. Um, that's things like uh, the, the you know, slowdown in the Chinese economy, um, you know, some of the trade talks. Uh, you might argue that some of the policy stuff with government dysfunction might be contributing in some way to volatility. Uh, but there's micro, too. There's earnings reports that have been uh, a, a source of worry uh, for investors, um, I step back and I look at the violence uh, of the moves in the, in Q4 and try to disentangle that relative to um, the slowdown in the economy, and that's a tough one to square. I think you wind up uh, ultimately concluding that there is a fragility in markets. Maybe this is just typical of late cycle where money just got yanked from risk. If you look at, for example, outflows from the HYG, uh, th- there was a velocity of those outflows that we haven't seen before. Um, so t- to answer your question, some of it's macro, some of it's micro, and then maybe this is just a little tautological, but some of it's just flows. Money got yanked, and then it got stuffed right back in. Uh, and that's, what, uh, that's how you get to such a big drawdown and then such a big reversal in a hurry. And then, of course, you also have the policy, yeah. quote, response, which are the soothing words from Jerome Powell or the trying to right. 
undo <clears throat> the fumble that he made. Very quickly, your Paul Sweeney, those puts you bought on NVIDIA have really paid off. You can take the rest of the year off. Absolutely. I'm, I'm set. <laughs> so, you know, so, Dean, I mean, how much, you know, when you think about the, that fourth quarter, particularly December, did you think the markets just got it wrong? Did it overshoot on the downside, recession talk, all those, and then that volatility, given what we've seen in January? I think that's probably the case. Uh, but again, we sort of talked ourselves into the, this narrative that the economy must be slowing so dramatically or else asset prices wouldn't have done what they did. And I just, uh, our firm, Macro Risk Advisors, we study asset prices and those can become dislodged sometimes for lengthy periods of time from the underlying fundamentals. Um, we, we all hear the stories about credit market fragility, right. liquidity, and I think that expressed itself uh, you know, right. quite a bit uh, in Q4. Dean, very quickly here before I let you go, the average for the VIX is 19 to 20. Where's the new average? Where does a pro like you set that decades, decades long 1920? What is it now, 16 or is it even lower? Yeah, so I think the learning process is, um, is one that occurs over time. So 2017, the low in the VIX kind of, it, it was about 10, that was your floor. 2018, yeah. your floor was 12, and I think 2019, your floor is, is 14-ish. Okay. Uh, so I think a trading range around that uh, around that low. Dean Kernan, thank you so much. Macro Risk Advisors. I'll Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.